Welcome to Arc Next Sessions Season 2, Episode 1. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Amelia, Donna, and Ken. We're really excited to be back with new shows and a new format. Instead of a single weekly show, this season we're splitting our podcast into two separate podcasts. This one, Arc Next Sessions, and our new one, Arc Next Sessions One to One. This show will remain a weekly panel discussion about the news among us hosts, and each week we'll try to bring a special guest to join us to talk about the news. Our new one-to-one podcast will be strictly interviews with architects and individuals making an impact in the built environment. That podcast is scheduled to premiere in a few days, featuring an interview with Neil Denari. One-to-one will be released each Monday. The episode length of both new podcasts will be shorter than our episodes last season, hopefully making it easier for our busy listeners to keep up to date. I also want to point out for those that don't subscribe to our podcast and get updated with new shows, We've been releasing short mini-sessions each day, featuring our interviews with our guests at our Next Up events that we hosted in Los Angeles and Chicago. So, on to this week's season premiere episode. Today we'll be discussing the Chicago Architecture Biennial with special guest Cynthia Davidson, director of LOG and co-curator of the U.S. Pavilion at the 2016 Venice Biennale. Welcome, Cynthia. It's great to have you join us today. Thank you, Paul. Paul, right? Yes. Okay, yeah, Paul, you have a radio voice. Oh, thank you. <laughs> he gets that all the time. <laughs> I've, got a, I've got a good mic, too, so I can't take all the credit. Um, so, Cynthia, as the co-director or the co-curator alongside Monica Ponce de Leon for the uh, upcoming 2016 U.S. Pavilion at the Venice Biennale, and you were able to visit Chicago to kind of walk through the biennial there, can you just give us some of your impressions of what you thought about the Chicago event in the context of knowing you're going to be planning your own uh, pavilion very soon? Well, what we're going to do in Venice is so different and so contained that I I didn't go to Chicago to make any kind of comparison. I went to Chicago out of deep interest to see what Sarah Herda and Joseph Grimo would do for a first biennial, architecture biennial in the United States. Um, I also used to live in Chicago. I started my career in architecture editing a magazine called Inland Architecture, or not Inland Architect, in, um, in Chicago in the 80s. So I know the impact that architecture has on every citizen in that city. It's a unique place where the, the civic population is really engaged in the built environment. And when I went there, I went the Monday after it had opened. I was not able to be there for the sort of press opening. Went the Monday afterwards where the general public was sort of beginning to come through. I was walking through with high school groups and um, with just citizens. And it was really reminiscent of my time there in the 80s when everyone who just lives in Chicago is so engaged in architecture. That was really nice to see. I mean, in that sense, I think having an American biennial, Chicago is probably the right place for it to happen. So it felt like it really made sense and that people who might otherwise not be so inclined to maybe visit an architectural exhibition or go on an architecture tour would still still found this biennial as an attractive thing to do and just a thing to help take part in their city as a way. Well, I think one of the statements Sarah made early on was that they really wanted to engage the citizens of Chicago. And in such a way that you began to wonder, is this a show for Chicagoans or is this a show for architects around the world, more like the Venice Biennale pretends to be, because the Biennale is certainly not for the citizens of Venice. There are so few of them left. So 
I think it was, so it was rewarding to see so many people who clearly just lived there coming to see what had happened at the cultural center and to see what was being exhibited. I didn't eavesdrop on any conversations. I couldn't help but hear some of the high school students being queried about, well, what do you, what did you learn about architecture today? Because uh, they had tour guides taking them around. But I, I think it actually is a really great opportunity to, to expose architecture in a new way to those students in that city. That said, what do you want me to say? <laughs> you want me to, how do you want me to sum up the Chicago Biennial? I don't think it can be summed up so easily. No, and I think that that's a huge part of a lot of the both the criticisms both for and against the Biennial is this idea of like sprawling ideas over too uh, thin of a surface, right? Is that there's just too much variety and that there's too much diversity to a fault where it might make it more difficult for the Biennial to make a really punchy impression if it has all these different operators involved with it. And Donna, I know this is a bit of your, of I don't want to call it your stick horse, but it's something that you often kind of get uh, roped into in discussions on ArcConnect in general, but like the diversity of forms of practice. I think that's one of the major themes that the Biennial has kind of made surface or brought to the surface. Um, and this overall expansion of the idea of what the architect is today and what, what the profession is and what it means to be an architect. And I think that maybe that's also a way that a core way in which it differs from the Venice Biennale, that this seems to be more almost like a statement of the changing nature of the profession than it does like a introverted, critical look at what is going on, but more just like things are changing and we're, we want to kind of come out of our chrysalis to the public. It, it certainly seemed that way to me. Some of the articles I've seen reviews written about it have really summed up to me, the something that we talked about with Patrick Schumacher months ago on the program about we're in this stage of architectural discourse where anything goes, sort of anything can happen. And I personally am really excited about the sort of smaller upstarts doing interesting work, maybe very socially engaged work. We had, um, Cynthia, we had uh, latent design. Uh, Kathleen Darnstadt was one of our guests on the podcast, and she was in the, the Biennale, of course. And, um, you know, I think she's been a great example of sort of, yeah, pushing against the traditional ways of practice. I wanted to ask, though, Cynthia, about uh, uh, specifically, I loved Inland Architect. I read it when the, in the 80s when I was in grad school or in school, and I loved that magazine. And I wanted to ask a little bit more about this, press you a little more on this Chicago question of, you know, what is it that happens in Chicago specifically in the architectural world that somehow makes it so appropriate for the, the Biennale to be there? Because I certainly think it is the best city for it. Could you talk a little bit more about Chicago and how it's changed over the years? Well, it's hard to say how it's changed over the years because I've not, I mean, I haven't made regular visits to Chicago to see what's evolved. Uh, in a certain sense, I think that North Michigan Avenue has become very suburbanized. I used to think of Chicago as a very tough, gritty city that only the Hancock building with its kind of big shoulders and and black uh, cross bracing could be in Chicago because it sort of epitomized the, the brawn of that city. Uh, whether it comes from the stockyards or or the railroads, but there's something about Chicago that's tough. And yet they're an extremely open, engaging, friendly people like most Midwesterners. Now, that's just characteristics of Chicago. I think it's been prettified. I think when Richard Daly was mayor, it seemed to become a bit more pleasant. I mean, the plantings everywhere. I mean, I'm not against plants. I love plants. <laughs> I love flowers, trees, gardens, right? But I know it changed the city for me. You know, the Trump Tower where the old Chicago Sun-Times building was is absolutely 
sort of horrifying. It's too, it's too, not sleek. It's, it's too glossy. It's too glossy for Chicago. But those are, I mean, you can't, can't do much about things like that. I think that what really struck me in the 80s in Chicago was how every architect there, almost without exception, was working in the shadow of Mies and the shadow of Wright, even though they'd both been dead for a long time. But their work is so powerful. I think Mies is still extremely powerful. I mean, I was really interested that Bryony Roberts staged this South Side um, marching troupe or whatever they were called on on Mises Federal Plaza. Uh, the uh, South Shore Drill Team. South Shore Drill Team on the plaza. I mean, I saw some video of that. I wasn't there when the, when the performance took place. I'm still not sure what the point of that was. I've read her text about that. I'll have to talk to her about it. You also have to listen to our interview that we did with her. That will be. Uh, did you? Yes. Um, so when we were at Chicago, we we kind of had a dual existence there, both um, attending and reporting on it. And we also held a series of interviews in the Randolph Square space in the um, entry foyer up to the uh, cultural center. And Bryony was uh, one of the participants that we interviewed in um, in that space there. And I think in particular, like her work is probably. Unfortunately, it was completely time specific. So like, as you said, it couldn't be experienced by everyone. And if you weren't there after the opening weekend, then you pretty much missed out. But integrally, it it brought people out of the cultural center and into a, a, a highly specific and highly historicized segment of Chicago. And I think that that's something that was very obviously very purposeful on, on the part of both Bryony and also Sarah and Joseph to kind of make sure that the veins of the biennial kind of extended out throughout the city and ask people to maybe go places that they either wouldn't otherwise, both tourists and locals, or see places in different ways than they might have otherwise. Right. To imagine how they could be otherwise. Exactly. I mean, I do think, I mean, to go back to what you were saying earlier, when I heard they were going to do the biennial there, I thought, how do you differentiate it from Venice? Because they were so careful to say, we're going to alternate with the Venice Biennale ignoring all other biennials that take place in other cities around the world as having any sort of, of um, real following, that Venice is, is still the Biennale for architecture that tops all of them. So I was very interested to see how they really selected people, some of whom have been in Venice, maybe more than I realize, have already shown in Venice in some way, but was also very conspicuous about who they didn't include that you might expect to see in Venice. I think that was a a new, fresh approach and probably the best way to start. I don't want to get into a discussion of of that awful word people talk about all the time, about architects who shine too brightly, (laughs) shall we say? The big, fat suns. Yeah. But I think that to call something the state of the art of architecture and to leave out, to conspicuously leave out some of those people was either a very brave or a very stupid thing to do. I'm not sure which it is yet. (laughs) Well, so far, I think there was a statistic quoted from Blair Kamen after the opening weekend of the biennial. There was over 30,000 visitors to the biennial just in that opening weekend of two days to the public. And of course, that's, I think, specifically to the cultural center. There were other exhibitions and events happening around town that people also attended. And so I think that in terms of the bet that the city of Chicago is making on this biennial and to bring people in and to 
I mean, the mayor is very explicit about it. Like this is a this is a great opportunity to encourage Chicago tourism built on, no pun intended, the city's cultural heritage as a site for architecture. No, no question. Right. That Venice does it for the exact same reason. The costs that we have to pay to put on an exhibition in the U.S. pavilion to Venice, to La Biennale, are extraordinary. And yet we all go do it. Every country goes and does it. And they all have, we all have to pay the same thing, thousands and thousands of euros. So it's a business. And the city of Chicago should think of the BNL or biennial as a, a cultural product. I mean, it's a business. There's no other reason for Chicago to do it, really, to bring tourists, mm-hmm. you know, to bring architects, to bring people there who are interested in seeing this exhibition the way you would go and see any sort of blockbuster exhibition at a major museum. So that brings up the question of overall, um, what kind of, we, we, a lot of the things we've been discussing about the biennial are just its overall Im- impact on the world of architecture and architectural identity, as in like how architects think of themselves as members of the profession no- nowadays. Um, but also one of these questions is like, how relevant are these kinds of biennials or biennales towards representing the profession? And of course, Venice has pedigree, is, is like Venice is the thing that people look towards to to kind of give that, to give that impression. But what what was your impression from, and of course, this is a question for everyone, but just what was the general impression of, if this is the state of the art of architecture, then what is that? What What is being depicted here as like the current state of things? I'm not sure that what was depicted is what I think the state of the art of architecture is today, because I found that and I could have missed something, but I, I, I found uh, computation and the digital to be lacking in the extreme. And boy, an editing log, do I get stuff about that all the time from architects all over the world who are concerned with um, what they can do with the computer and with digital new digital tools. That was not an obvious thing to me there. And that kind of surprised me because I think one of the things that, I mean, in a certain way, the biennial seemed to kind of... Um, to more subscribe to this kind of artisanal backlash against the digital, which I think is going to be very short-lived because I I don't think we can make a living continuing to make little artisanal projects. I mean, this is a maybe parallel thinking to what our work for the U.S. Pavilion has been about because we're working on projects for Detroit that we will show in, in, in Venice. And one of the comeback industries of Detroit that's attracting young entrepreneurial spirits is not just these dot-coms, but artisanal products, um, making things by hand, making things out of reused, repurposed materials, and that kind of thing. I saw a lot of that in Chicago, I thought, in, in terms of architecture. There was some research. I mean, I thought Jeannie Gang's research on police stations and neighborhoods is one of the best projects I've seen her do. I thought it was really an important social project, social research, uh, especially given the all the tensions in the last year or so or more with police and neighborhoods. That was a research project that really made sense to me, that I thought had real legs. A lot of research projects in architecture don't seem to have any legs at all or seem very superficial. So I thought that research was represented in an interesting way by that project. The the difference in the top floor between, say, the Moss House and the Tatiana Bilbao House was really 
interesting. I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to take the two explanations for those houses and switch them? You're referring to the most um, house was the corridor house with like the, a, the a critique of mansionization. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and Tatiana's was housing for poor Mexican families. I thought it would have been, and they're both made with units of plywood. But for me, the Moss House was much more interesting because it was thinking through an architectural problem and a problem in housing. Whereas for me, Tatiana was taking on more pragmatic issues like the Mexican building code and what was allowable. And I didn't think that the quote unquote architecture was architecture in the same way that the that she was doing something, she was accomplishing a kind of form that could be expanded over time to put a roof over families' heads, but that the Moss Project was, for, for what I personally am interested in, which is kind of the perpetuation of deep thinking and the discipline, was much more interesting to me. And then why not? Why wouldn't any poor family want to live in that corridor house? I thought it was a fantastic form. The one thing that strikes me about this is is the uh, and the one thing I appreciated was the lack of parametricism and and uh, the kind of uh, generative components that Patrick Schumacher seems to uh, or is clinging to. Um, I thought that you know just in reading the description of the architecture biennial, their their linkage is the uh, Columbian Exposition, which was really kind of the the start of moving uh, vertically. Uh, where this one seems to be kind of moving globally. So I thought the small projects were much more interesting, at least the ones I've uh, looked at online, uh, much more the narrative and the artist's artisanal quality of them seem are much more interesting to me as a further exploration than the than the 3D modeling or anything of that nature. I think you might be right. This possibly is uh, just a, a very uh, short time duration, but I wonder if this is a bridge to something else. This is a bridge point and we can actually hopefully uh, leapfrog past this kind of reliance on um, the kind of parametric form making that doesn't really affect anyone unless take the um, the ideas that have been generated here in terms of the narrative and try to work that so that it can make uh, the form making much more uh, serve, uh, servable to a, uh, a larger part of the public where it seems right now it just it seems to fulfill a cultural uh, form making and rather than uh, solving real critical urban issues or even social issues. So that's kind of the one thing that, that interests me about uh, going to the uh, biennial. Well, I, I, I don't think you have to have Patrick Schumacher in the biennial to talk about what's going on digitally in architecture. He seems um, to think so. <laughs> I'm, sure he, I'm sure he does. But I mean, I, I think it's interesting that there really was very little indication of the role of of the computer in, in design today. That's I would absolutely agree with that, Cindy. I think it was that was something that absolutely surprised me in going through the exhibitions and seeing, I wouldn't say conspicuous absence, but I would say like market absence of that kind of th- stuff, um, at least from also a, like a public, the perspective of the public, where it seems to me just like when you're putting on an exhibition of that scale, it seems almost easy to pull for those types of projects that look absolutely incredible and uh, to the average person or, or to, to me, um, absolutely crazy um, and just incredible in terms of technological ability and, and digital um, design capabilities. But in that regard, I feel like it's also more of a of something that kind of bridges make, makes it a little bit more tense when you start discussing also the engagement with art in the in the I keep wanting to say biennale and then I have to correct myself to say biennial, um, but in the uh, biennial, how there was uh, one of the other criticisms raised was this feeling that there's too much explicit art and that the 
projects, while not uh, while while lacking in an idea of form making just for the sake of form making, which often could be seen as kind of an art pursuit, that there was still too there were still too many projects devoted to this idea of just art or art formation or like art practice, and in, to some didn't feel explicitly architectural enough. Did you get that impression at all? Like, I think one of the particular participants that has been brought up in that regard is Amanda Williams's work, mostly in the south side of Chicago, mm-hmm. painting houses that are been slated for demolition. So what was your impression regarding that? Well, I didn't get to see that work other than the photographs. That I mean, I didn't get to go to the south side and see the Astor Gates project. I didn't have enough time. I did see the photographs in the cultural center of Amanda's work. I mean, I think it's a fun project. Is it an architectural project? I don't know. If it's calling attention to a form by painting it orange or blue, regardless of how these colors are used or or considered in an African-American community, maybe it does call attention to the form. Maybe it does say, this is a house. It's empty. What do we think about that? Now that you can see it now, now that it's orange, right? I don't know much about her project. Is that too artsy? I don't, is that any more artsy than Bjark Ingels putting a kind of generator transformer thing in to stand for a building? Right. <laughs> I mean, what was that? Or, or Stefano Boeri doing a film of tree trimmers on, on the Bosco Verticale in Milan? What was that? that that's, that's not any different. I mean, I would say that Amanda's projects may be closer to getting us to think about architecture than those other kinds of installations. So to me, that brings up, Blair Kamen asked this question in his review, you know, how do we apply this? Or is this applicable to architecture? And I feel like, uh, you know, I'm going back in time here, but, you know, Cranbrook in the 90s, that was a big question. Uh, You know, Cooper Union, throughout its history, some of these studies people do, people always ask that question. Well, how is this, you know, you're not designing a building, so what are you doing? And to me, that's really kind of the purpose of biennials or exhibitions of any kind, really, is to ask these questions that are around the topic of architecture, even if they're not buildings, right? To me, that's incredibly fertile ground. And, um, uh, you know, I think we would all be poorer intellectually if we didn't pay attention to things that are not architecture. So when someone's looking at something that's not architecture, but thinking about it and displaying it in a way that relates somehow to our discipline, to me, that's, that's the entire reason to have a biennial. I, I w- no, I would agree with you. I, I think everything is applicable to architecture. Absolutely everything. Architects have to take into consideration everything when they're making an, a project. The weather, the people that are going to use it, the materials that are available, the money, the budget, the po- local politics. I mean, everything. Um, exactly. You know, so I, I think it's all applicable. I think that one of the things that is also kind of striking about the the inclusion of these things that are often called just art projects is like the relationship that the architecture dialogue might have to contemporary art practice. Because, you know, we have a lot of really high profile projects and it's always been this way, but high profile architecture projects being located at at, or being um, conceived of as art institutions or institutions that somehow relate to art. And I also think it's striking that maybe instead of thinking of, oh, what is a person, an architect, a trained architect like Amanda Williams doing in this kind of context, doing the project that she did, instead of thinking of it that way, it's like, well, maybe as an artist in her practice, she feels her 
work is more relevant and more fertile presented to an architecture audience. And in that regard, like it seems that the biennial is doing a great service of kind of bringing in people who might otherwise try to push their projects in other fields, but now feel that architecture is the most fertile field to push that in. Um, and of course, I'm attaching a lot of like presumptions to Amanda's intention and being involved in the biennial in the first place. But I just think that it's a kind of flip side way of viewing the, the projects that might not seem automatically relevant, or at least have been kind of pushed out as so. But I, I think in general, too, regarding the projects like Bryony's, projects like the Theaster Gates project, the variety of those applications of what are often similar ideas, especially in the context of Chicago, is incredibly uh, valuable. And so one more question I'd like to ask you, Cynthia, is um, when you brought up the kind of a conspicuous absence of digital projects, who would you think should have been featured or what practice do you think should have been featured to that end in the kind of exhibitionary process that the biennial is? Oh, I don't know. I'd have to think about that. <laughs> no, I mean, seriously, I mean, I really, nobody immediately comes to mind in terms of, it's just, it's just so prevalent. Mm -hmm. There's so many people working on it and so many young people working on it and trying to come up with ways other than the Patrick Schumacher way so that, you know, it doesn't, we don't have to embrace parametricism to include the digital. I mean, I just, I just want to go back to your comment about art projects because when we did the we did a Monica and I did an open call for expressions of interest for the Venice Biennale for the United for our US Pavilion project. And what was really surprising, we got 253 responses. And I would say that seven of those responses, which I thought was a lot, was from architects who work as artists, uh, purely as artists hmm. and and aren't aren't drawing up blueprints they don't call them blueprints anymore, do they? Aren't making up, aren't drawing construction drawings for buildings, but are drawing drawings for art installations and art projects and whether they be temporary or permanent pieces that someone could buy and collect. I was really surprised at the number there were. So I think architects working as in art practices is a, is a logical thing to include. We're not including them in Venice, but it was a logical thing to include in, in Chicago. But your question about computation and computers, I mean, we're doing the next issue of Log is called Robolog, meaning robots and logs, <laughs> right? And Greg Lynn in California is the guest editor of this issue. We work with guest editors from time to time. And it's, it's almost torturous going through some of this really technical stuff that these people have submitted for this issue. You almost have to say, how does this relate to architecture? Right. I mean, you ask, how does an art practice relate? Well, how does this stuff relate? It, um, we still have a lot of things to unpack. There's a lot of things going on. You know, going back, Cynthia, to your comment about the sort of economic impact of these events in these cities, I wanted to point out Art Prize in Grand Rapids, which just finished uh, a couple weeks ago. And it, of course, has clearly been, let's use art as an economic driver to bring people to the city to look at things. But I also was really interested that the winner this year, Kate Gilmore, did this piece called Higher Ground, which to me was entirely about architecture, it took place in a house. It was an installation in a house um, mm -hmm. that she repurposed for as an art piece. So I, I do feel like there's really fertile, great ground between these two disciplines. You know, ultimately, architecture to me is a building. It's physical material building. So mm -hmm. that will come eventually, but all of these great things that can influence and we can think about as we're designing. I, I, I'm glad that there's this kind of very fertile ground. Yeah, me too. As you said, it's all applicable. Yeah. 
And so does anyone else have any uh, final comments to kind of round off our discussion? We've done so much thinking and writing and talking about the biennial. It's kind of like <laughs> almost as if we've, but without even, without no, knowing that we haven't even talked about everything. In the four days that I was there at the opening weekend, it was just like, I knew I still wouldn't be able to see anything. But um, Ken or Donna, do you have plans to be able to uh, head out to Chicago at any point? December. I'll be there in December. Excellent. Oh, good. Send us a weather report. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, and I'm also kind of curious to see then as things close, what all of the uh, articles and, and comments and reviews will be, because there was such a rush of responses immediately that first weekend. I'm really eager to see at the end what sort of closing comments will be. So, well, I think know. what's interesting is the amount of programming that's going on during this uh, biennial for all the people who are in Chicago. I mean, there's, I get their newsletter every week and the list of events that are going on every week, you have to choose almost every night if you were there, which one of several events you want to attend, whether it's a film or a reading or a lecture, the way they've involved the schools. I mean, they've done a great job of incorporating the whole city in this and and keeping public programming going, most of which is for free. I mean, they just, they should have gotten the Art Institute of Chicago to discount tickets to the David Ajay show. That's all I'd say. $25. (laughs) Well, it's not too late. You know, I think the the biennial goes on until January 3rd, I believe. So maybe once we get this podcast out, we can uh, tweet at at them to make sure they know what's up. (laughs) Yeah. You can just buy a David Ajay show ticket for 10 bucks and just go see that show and leave, whatever, right? Well, Cynthia, this was so great. Thank you so much for coming on and talking with us about the biennial and the Biennale. And I'm so glad I was able to say those two words in close succession. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We'd love to have you back on at a later date when some things with the U.S. Pavilion have kind of become a little bit more solidified. Yeah, that'd be great. Maybe Monica and I can talk with you together about what we're doing. Yeah, we'd love that. That'd be excellent. Well, thanks so much and have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Thanks, Cynthia. Bye. Thanks for listening to our first episode of season two. We hope you enjoy this new format. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions about it, you can reach us on Twitter at our new Twitter account, Arc Sessions, that's A-R-C-H Sessions, or with hashtag ArcConnectSessions. You can also send us an email to connect at ArcConnect.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. And uh, thanks again, and we'll talk to you next week.